What up, Vineyard? He is risen. No, Easter is sort of a big deal. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's a really big deal, actually. It's so big. They should have a little champagne on Easter morning. Like real champagne. The kind that's intoxicating. I mean, it is the thing that sort of like redefines history, right? I mean, if people drink this stuff when they get married, then why wouldn't we drink this stuff on the day that Jesus gets up? We've all have some of that. Cheers. He's risen. You know, um, N.T. Wright, he's the Bishop of Durham, was the Bishop of Durham, probably one of the smartest guys alive and one of my favorite scholars and theologians to read. He says that Jesus, Jesus is such a big deal and that Easter is such a big deal that one of the really terrible things that has happened to Easter is that we've just reduced it to one day and that in all reality, uh, if we spend 40 days observing Lent, we should, we should have weeks observing Easter and there should be like a celebration and there should be champagne every morning for like seven or eight days in a row. When you eat your breakfast eggs, you should have a little toast of champagne because Jesus got out of the grave. And it means that death is not going to hold you down, that you're actually going to live forever, and that we're going to see this earth renewed, that beauty and justice is going to take hold, and everything that's ruined is going to get renewed. It's all going to happen, and it's actually worth celebrating. Like, one of the ways that you live in it now is just go ahead and live in it now. Just, like, go ahead. Like, some people are, like, really uptight, and they won't, they won't celebrate. Dude, if you don't like it now, how are you going to like it later? Like, what if, God, what if God doesn't change? Seriously. So we're going to pour a little bit this morning. I don't know. By the way, I didn't have any breakfast this morning. This could be interesting before the end of the message. I'm not going to drink all of them. I'm, I'm going to share. Come on, Hannah, you probably need some of that, don't you? Cheers, don't you need that? Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. And over here, Matthew, he volunteered. You volunteer, you get one. Amen. Bless you. Hey, he's risen. He's risen. Samuel, he's risen. Indeed. There we go. Anyhow, Easter's a really big deal. It's what makes the Christian story what it is. It's where the gravity of Jesus takes hold and, and pulls you into his orbit. As a friend of mine typed a couple of weeks ago in an email, he said, he said to me, Adam, you know, any fool can get himself killed, but it's the resurrection that sort of flips the script. And it's true. Any fool can get himself killed. It's another trick if you can get out of the grave. That's a totally different story altogether. And it's the part that gives the Easter story the gravity. The Apostle Paul said a similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read you a few scriptures. Chapter 15, 17 through 20. This is what the Apostle Paul said about Jesus' resurrection. He said, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ, 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Listen, if our hope is only right here, right now, today, it's a pitiful situation. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's the anchor. It's the anchor. We're resurrection people. Christians are resurrection people. Here at the vineyard, we're resurrection people. And all of our hope is anchored there. And by the way, when I'm talking about resurrection, I'm not talking about being raised from the dead. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but lots of people have been raised from the dead. And all of those people died again. Jesus is the one and only person in all of history who's been resurrected, raised up and living evermore. We're resurrection people. We're, we're resurrection people. Jesus Christ murdered, died an innocent death. And by the way, when he died an innocent death, it was your death and it was my death. It was his blood that was a cleansing stream, a stream which ran from his own hands and feet. Jesus Christ, dead in the tomb, not sort of dead, all the way dead, dead as a deer on the side of the road. You wouldn't want to touch him. There's always a deer on the side of the road dead when you drive from my house. You know those swollen belly things? Jesus Christ, dead in the tomb, swollen belly. You wouldn't want to touch him. And then, and then the power of the Father raised him up forever. And when Jesus was raised, we were raised. This is such an elemental truth, and a lot of the church doesn't know this, but when Jesus was raised, you were raised. Everything that happened to the Son of God has, in fact, already happened to you and I. When Jesus was raised, our hopes were raised. And when Jesus was raised, the seasons changed. We went from eternal winter into the emerging spring of God's new creation. We went from creation to new creation. We turned around and we started heading back to Eden. All the sadness of Genesis 3 gets turned on its head and God continued in earnest His original plan that human beings would live with Him in a world of unlimited possibilities. See, the world of unlimited possibilities has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus. One of the things that you and I hope for is that secretly in our heart, and it's there, placed there by God, we hope for a world where we could experience the tangible, personal presence of God and we hope for a world with unlimited possibilities. And the good news is, is all of those things have already begun in the resurrection. You and I have a hope that we would partner with God to bring Eden, in, uh, Eden order to all the world. And in fact, we're going to bring Eden order to all of the cosmos. God's plan is that the beauty and the order and the perfection and the presence of Eden would spread not only all over the earth, but that it would spread throughout the cosmos. That's what we're headed toward. That's what we're headed toward. And Eden beauty, Eden order, Eden justice, Eden presence has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus. Already begun. We're going to spread that, not just around the world, but we're going to spread it throughout the solar systems, throughout the universe, throughout the cosmos. Things like justice. Justice and beauty are going to be everywhere. No longer hidden. You know, sometimes when you... Uh, Anybody in the room ever been to Hawaii and seen a sunset? There's nothing like it. And it's beautiful, but it only lasts a moment. Even if you live in Hawaii, the sunset only lasts a moment until the next day. But there's something that's going to happen, and a Hawaii sunset is going to fill the universe. Things like justice are no longer going to be hidden. Everywhere there were tears, there will be laughter. And everywhere there was sadness, there will be joy. And everywhere there was death, there will be life, like greenhouse life multiplied by a billion. 
The resurrection of Jesus means that things like sickness and pain and sadness and death do not get the final word. In fact, God has shouted, He has shouted throughout the universe that life and love and forgiveness and beauty would be the final word. And in an odd way, the beginning of another world, a new age, the one inaugurated by the resurrection of His Son. The future has a language. This is really important. The future has a language, and it's one that you and I should start learning now. It's one that you and I should start studying right now. The language that we know, the one that we're most familiar with, our native tongue, it's going to serve us no good purpose in God's coming future age. There's another language, and the lexicon of that language is hidden inside His resurrected Son. Things are not getting worse. They are, in fact, getting better. A lot of people in the church believe that things are getting worse. I'm here to tell you they're not getting worse. They're getting better. Jesus got up out of the grave. From that point on, history has gotten better. We've had shadowy moments. We'll have some more shadowy moments. But the truth is, things are getting better. Uh, For instance, it's actually a fact. I don't know if you're aware of this. Did you know that last year, fewer people died from war than in the last 200 years previous? Things are getting better. Things are getting better. God is doing something, and it's located in the resurrection of His precious Son. Not only are things getting better, but bad things, bad things, no no matter how bad they are, and no matter the source, are in fact only temporary. And not only that, but some things that seem true now, this is a really big deal as well, some things that seem true now in light of eternity won't be true at all. Some things which seem true now in the light of eternity won't be true at all. For instance, every single tragedy, every single tragedy that touches our lives, every single death, every single sickness, every single mistreatment, every single broken relationship, every single broken trust, all the misunderstandings, all the ways we've failed and all the ways we've hurt one another, no matter how real and no matter how true and no matter how actual, all of those things are being laid in the, into the grave of our own making and what comes out will scarcely rem- resemble what went in. Here's the truth. This is a Christian truth. The truth is there are some things which are true now, but in the light of eternity won't be true at all. Oh, two years ago, a little less than two years ago, um, one, of my, one of my wife's cousins was murdered and raped and that is true. And in the light of eternity, it won't be true at all. There are some actual things that have happened to people in this room. Some of you have been mistreated and some of you have been abused by the hands of people you thought you could trust. Some of you have been treated terribly. Some of you have been left. Some of you got married only to have that deadbeat son of a gun leave you. And in the light of eternity, the thing I can tell you is it won't be true at all. There are all kinds of things that are true now that won't be true later. Some of you got sickness in your body. Some of you got a cancer tumor. And some of you might even have it now. And if you do, then we want to pray for you at the end of the service that the power of the future will come into the now. But some of you have lost a family member to things like cancer or to weird autoimmune diseases. And it like left a stain on your family. And the truth is, later on, it won't be true at all. Not all truth is equal. Maybe you had a terrible mother. Or maybe you ended up with cancer. Or maybe your husband left you. And maybe all those things are true. But they are not as true as what will be 
precisely because none of that will remain or last or hold sway in God's coming future, which is upon us in the resurrection of Jesus. A truer day is here. And a truer day is coming. When you think about it, it's all really heady stuff. It's really heady stuff. It's like a good stout beer. It'll make your head swim. We really don't know what to do with these kinds of thoughts. We want to embrace them. And we do embrace them. Yet here we are in days of living and dying and cancer and crazy people. Right? We want to embrace this resurrection of Jesus stuff, but here we are. We're, we're in the days of living and dying and cancer and crazy people. And you wonder what to do with all this resurrection. You want to grab hold of it. You want to grab hold of it, but it can be hard to believe. And at times our lives are filled with reasons to doubt. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm walking with God, I, I don't know about certain stuff. Like I believe in the resurrected Jesus. I believe in God's coming future. And at the same time, because we're living in the crazy days of living and dying and cancer and nutty people, sometimes I struggle. Right? I see all kinds of heads shaking in this room. You guys know what I'm talking about. Well, the good news this morning is that all of our doubts, they put us in good company. One of the surprising yet unifying threads that sews all four gospel accounts of the resurrection together is doubt. The, or, the other fact that sews all four of the gospel accounts together is, of course, the resurrected Jesus. If you read all four gospel accounts of the crucifixion, of Jesus' burial, and of his resurrection, you get a very similar story that is in some ways very dissimilar. Things that are in John are not in Matthew. Things that are in Luke don't show up in Mark. And it sort of makes sense. They're all different people, and they're giving their account of what they've gathered. It's the way that they experienced the story, or at least the way that they gathered the story that was disseminated. It's like if Brent and I went to, the, to a baseball game and saw the Reds next week. If we came home and we wrote a paper, it would be a different paper. It'd be the same thing, but it'd be a little different. And that's kind of what you get in the Gospels. But one of the interesting thing about the Gospels is that in every single one, there's this little thread that holds them together. And one of the things that is consistent through all four Gospels is doubt. It's in every single one of the Gospel accounts. We're going to read some scripture from all four Gospels this morning. This is out of Matthew. This is the Great Commission. And this is, there's a verse in here that is so surprising that most people, you just, you don't, you read right past it. This is like when Jesus is getting ready to leave the planet, all right? Look at this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Did you know that you can worship Jesus and doubt all at the same time? Did you know that your doubts can't keep you from worshipping Jesus? And did you know that your worship might not keep you from doubting? Second. Mark. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and that he had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form, 
to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Luke. This is the disciples here. They're hanging out and Jesus shows up. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. I love this. And Jesus said to them, Hey, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, you guys have anything to eat? (laughs) It's on how you read it. I love that Luke passage, though, because you get you get joy, amazement and unbelief all in the same moment. It's crazy. And Jesus is like, dude, I'm just hungry. PB and J. And then like one of the most famous parts of the Easter narrative, you know, good old doubting Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with him when Jesus came, when Jesus came the first time around. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and the place, my finger and the mark of his nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, Jesus is so kind, you guys. This is part of this, the kindness of Jesus. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it. uh, Look at that. Not on my side, in my side. Apparently, Jesus has a marsupial pocket forever. You can put it in there. Do not disbelieve. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. All four gospel accounts. Every single resurrection story contains a thread of doubt. Now, one of the reasons that this is so remarkable, it's so remarkable because the gospels vary in so many other ways. For instance, the birth of Jesus is not in all four Gospels. There's no birth story in Mark. The birth of Jesus is not in all four, in all four Gospels. Not only that, the, but the healing of the leper. You know the guy who comes to Jesus and says, I know you can, I'm just not sure if you're willing. You know that guy? Yeah, not in all four Gospels. Matthew. Water to wine. One of Jesus' most famous stories. It's only in John. Razoring of Lazarus, so famous, only in John. The parable of the prodigal son. That's like Jesus' most famous parable, right? Not in all four Gospels. It's in Luke. It's really interesting because some of the most famous stuff about who Jesus is, some of the most central things about who Jesus is, are not, in fact, in all four Gospels. But the one thing that all four Gospels do agree upon is that there is a Jesus, that He was crucified, that He was buried, and that He was resurrected, and that the people who were around Him doubted. That's so interesting. Now, the other fascinating part about this whole story is this, that the people who doubted were the very ones who spent the most time with Him. (laughs) This is so interesting. This is going to help you out. 
The people who are out on the road with Jesus, the people who spent the most time with Jesus are the people who doubted the most that he was actually resurrected when they met him. Isn't that interesting? Out on the road with Jesus, three and a half years. And we've talked about this for the last couple of weeks, that you don't really know someone until you travel with them, right? They'd been on a three and a half year road trip with Jesus. Tell me how well they knew Jesus after three and a half years. The answer is very well. And not only have they been out with Jesus traveling for three and a half years, but they've, you know, they're just walking with them. I mean, it's like a camp out, you know? It's not just traveling. It's like camping with Jesus for three and a half years. And not only that, but they saw Jesus do miracles. Three and a half years. They saw all the miracles. Not some of them, all of them. Most people who were alive when Jesus was around, if you were lucky, maybe you saw one of Jesus' miracles. The disciples saw them all. Uh, multiplied the food. The disciples saw healing of the leper. Uh, my, one of my personal favorites, Gadarene demoniac. You know, legion, 2,000 demons, all the demons into the pigs down the hill. You know, crazy. They saw that. And these are the guys who disbelieve. Not only did they spend three and a half years with Jesus traveling, and not only did they see the miracles, but Jesus empowered them to do the miracles. And on two different occasions, Jesus sends them out. First sends out the 12, and then he sends out the 72, right? And then after Jesus is crucified and resurrected. These are the guys who are like, I'm not going to believe it unless I touch it and put my hand in there. Now, this is what makes it even crazier. That, all of that's crazy. The crazier still part is that before Jesus was crucified, on three separate occasions, he told them, guys, they're going to kill me. And they're going to put me in the ground. And then I'm going to get up after three days. So the guys who spent the most time with him, the guys who saw all the miracles, the guys who did the miracles, the guys who knew all the teaching, they had the Sermon on the Mount memorized, and the guys who heard Jesus specifically tell them three different times, they're going to kill me and then I'm going to get back up. These are the guys who doubted. Now, who in here feels bad about occasionally doubting? I hope you don't. This whole, this whole thing raises a couple of important points. Uh, the first thing I would like to say is this. Uh, it, it's a little bit depressing, but it's really true and it'll help you. Uh, the first important point is this. Spending time with Jesus will not insulate you from dealing with serious doubt. Uh, you've probably heard this sort of thing. Uh, what you need is a quiet time. Because if you'll have a quiet time, then you won't walk away from Jesus and you'll never doubt. Uh, it's actually not true. Uh, spending time with Jesus will not insulate you from doubt. Uh, experiencing a miracle will not insulate you from doubt. Seeing miracles will not insulate you from doubt. Uh, having good teaching will not insulate you from doubt. Having a prayer journal will not insulate you from doubt. Uh, reading your Bible every single morning and journaling and, and doing all that stuff and hanging out with Christians and seeing miracles and experiencing Jesus and knowing God and traveling with Him and having a journey and a history, none of that will insulate you from doubt. None. Uh, that's really important because uh, parents and teachers and disciple makers and leaders and pastors tend to think that spending time with Jesus, experiencing miracles and good teaching will insulate their children and their flock from doubt. And I'm here to tell you right now this morning, uh, you cannot insulate your kids from doubt. And you can't insulate the people that you're discipling from doubt. All you can do is put it in its proper context and let God handle them. So now we need to talk about why ten people tend to doubt. Here's why people tend to doubt. The main reason I believe that people tend to doubt is because God's work ends up including areas 
methods and actions that no one could conceive. In short, we think we have this God thing nailed. (laughs) Here's what happens to the disciples of Jesus. You get around Jesus, you learn a few things, and then after a little while you think you've kind of become an expert on Jesus and God stuff, and you think you understand how he works and all of his methods, and then Jesus will invariably work a different way and use a different method, and then you get this crisis of faith on your hands. That's mostly why people doubt. We tend to live out of a small sliver. So imagine that life in God is like this, and most of us, me included, tend to live out of this small sliver, and we accept and reject life and God based upon preconceived ideas, and so we essentially end up seeing what we want to see. Crazier still is when we see what we see because we've seen something in God. This is one of the really important parts about understanding doubt and journey with Jesus. One of the reasons that you see what you see in God is because you've seen something in God. In fact, one of the reasons that people reject certain aspects of who God is or certain ways that God's worked is because they've seen God work in another way. You can actually get blinded by the light. Anybody ever been to the beach? Walk out of your hotel room for the first time. You put on your new flip-flops. You got your new swim trunks. They're really cool. They're board shorts. You've been doing push-ups for two months, getting ready for this one moment. (laughs) You're feeling good about your shoulders. And you go out onto the Pensacola Beach, which has white sand, and it reflects all that sun up into your face, and you get just blinded for a while, right? Yeah, one of the things that most people don't understand is that you can be blinded by revelation. You can have a revelation, you can have an experience, and you can have an encounter with God which can show you something and at the same time blind you to another part of who God is. The people who lived in Jesus' hometown, they grew up with Jesus, right? They had a revelation of Jesus. Who's Jesus? Well, Jesus is the carpenter. And is it true that Jesus was the carpenter? That's a true thing. Mm -hmm. Jesus shows up one day, goes to the synagogue and says, Hey, can somebody give me that Isaiah thing? And he rolls out the scroll in Isaiah to Isaiah 61, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Preach good news to the poor, open blind eyes. You know that passage? And it says that everyone in the room is amazed, and then they were offended. Why Why were they offended? They were offended because what they knew about Jesus couldn't hold what Jesus was doing now. It can actually happen to you. So experience with Jesus can actually set you up for a new kind of doubt. Experience with Jesus can set you up for a kind of blindness. Uh, Have an experience with God that changes your life forever. It will open up one circle, but unless you become a wise person, it can can actually shut off an entire other circle of who God is and what He's doing. So what you know about God can actually blind you to what you might need to know in the future. And throughout, this is really great right here, throughout the Gospels, doubts are associated with believers. If you read read through the Gospels, uh, doubt is associated with believers, not unbelievers. It's as though you have to believe something before you can doubt it. You have to be committed to something before you can question it. Doubt is the unique phenomenon of believers. So you believe in Jesus. 
And you walk with Jesus. And then they kill him. And everything that you've believed about Jesus causes you to struggle to believe that Jesus is resurrected. And then you believe in the resurrected Jesus. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute. But then you go, okay, I believe in the resurrected Jesus. And then you begin to encounter what is it that the resurrected Jesus might mean? Well, one of the things that the resurrected Jesus means is that God's glorious future is coming into the present. That all the good stuff is being poured out into the here and now. And now I'm beginning to struggle with believing that. Why? Because my wife's got cancer and my cousin just left his wife and my boss is a jerk and I don't have any money. And by the way, there are no jerky bosses in heaven. Uh, There's no lack in heaven. Nobody has cancer in heaven. And uh, your wife's cousin's husband wouldn't leave her in heaven. And so now we believe in Jesus. We believe in the resurrected Jesus. But now we're struggling to believe that God's glorious future is being poured out into the here and now. Nice shot, Glenn. So you believe in Jesus. So if you believe in Jesus, the good news this morning is that you've just set yourself up to struggle with believing some other things in Jesus. Experience with Jesus is the seedbed for doubt. The disciples followed, they saw miracles, and eventually believed that he was the Christ. And when they died, they were shocked. Why? Why were they shocked? The main reason they were shocked is because the guy did miracles and he raised Lazarus out of the dead. How is the guy who does miracles and raises Lazarus out of the dead going to be the guy who dies? Like, how do you kill that guy, right? Experience with Jesus sets you up for doubt. In the resurrection story, people struggled to grasp. They struggled to grasp it for all different reasons. Even though Jesus was explicit about what he was headed for. Some people couldn't believe that Jesus died. Those would be the guys on the road to Emmaus. And it would be hard to believe because he did so so many miracles. But other people had trouble believing that Jesus was alive. That's Thomas. Probably everybody in the room is either an Emmaus or a Thomas disciple. Some Some of us have trouble believing God when he displays his weakness his strength that looks like weakness. And then others of us in the room, we have struggles believing God when he displays his power. And we, we have a hard time believing that maybe he was resurrected. And then some of you are like me. And, then some, and I, I'm the guy who's sometimes an Emmaus disciple and then other days I'm a Thomas disciple. I'm like sort of both. Some of us have a God who can't die. And others of us in the room who got, have a God who can't live after he's dead. Some of us have a God who can't use suffering. And then others of us in the room have a God who only uses suffering. Some of us have a God who can't heal. And then others of us in the room have a God who would never not heal. Some of us have a God who would never party. And then others of us have a God who would never not party. Or a God who would never read the scientific journal. Or a God who would never chill. Or whatever else you're worried and doubtful about. One thing should be pointed out right here and now about doubt. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. I want to put this quote up. 
from an old guy. Old dude, Henry Drummond. This is what he says. He said, Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. Y'all need to take a screenshot of that? Go ahead. Just go ahead. Do it. Leave it up, Jonathan. People be taking pictures, Jonathan. (laughs) Doubt might actually be a good thing. Doubt might actually be a good thing in your life. Or it might not at least be the worst thing. Because doubt might be a sign that you're dealing with the collision of two very different but very real worlds. Doubt might be the sign that a person is beginning to wake up to a new superior reality. See, a lot of times we experience doubt and, and then right along with doubt, right, right close with it, we experience condemnation. I'm here to tell you that you shouldn't feel condemned because doubt might be the sign that you're getting ready to walk into something new. It might be the sign that you're already walking in something new and you're just struggling to be able to hold that thing together with everything else that you've known. How many of you understand, if you walk around with miracle Jesus for three and a half years, it's hard to understand dead Jesus in the tomb. Some people get stuck in this world and they they struggle to lay hold of the age to come. Some of us have laid hold in in some small way to the age to come, but we struggle to believe that this age is in any way a player or a part of the new thing. Doubt might be a sign that we're being pulled for a time stretch so that we can grow doubt is the collision of the brackish waters it's where the rivers of the kingdom hit the oceans of the present age and then here's the good news the good news is this that there's a good chance that our doubts are going to bring us another encounter with the resurrected jesus both kinds of disciples road to emmaus disciples and thomas disciples they both have an encounter with the resurrected lord you know why? Because Jesus cares about doubters. He cares about doubters. On the road to Emmaus, two disciples were brokenhearted and filled with doubt. Thomas is angry and unbelieving, but Jesus comes to both. By the way, they did not come to him. He comes to them. Both of these stories sort of put faith in a different place. He's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go and get the one. Now, what kind of shepherd leaves 99 to go and get one? He's either the dumbest shepherd in the world, or he's a a shepherd who's operating on a completely different value system. If the Lord comes and he does something amazing in front of 100 people, and you're the one person in the room who struggles to believe it, you shouldn't feel condemned. There's a really good chance Jesus is going to come and get you. He leaves the 99. He goes and gets the one. Thomas says, I won't believe. I will not believe until I put my hands in there and put my hand in his side. I want to feel it. And Jesus is like, okay, those are the terms. I'm totally cool with that. Jesus is so kind. 
there's a good chance that our doubts will bring us an encounter with Jesus. Doubt might mean that we're standing in a new reality with an old mindset. Doubt is the struggle. Doubt is the stretching. And doubt is hopefully the old giving way to the new. But here's what we should not do. We should not fear doubt and we should not hedge all of our bets and stiffen up. See, some people have made an idol out of certainty. Especially in the church. In the church, we've made an idol out of certainty. Jesus says, follow me. But what we have done is we've, we've run the math a little different. We've said, well, I will only follow to the degree that I'm absolutely positively certain, certain, certain about every single detail, and then maybe I'll go. We've made an idol out of certainty. We've got to let that go. That's what happens when you fear doubt. You hedge all your bets. When you fear doubt and you hedge all your bets, all you're really doing is you're fearing a future which is different from the form that you're currently living in or different from anything that you can possibly currently conceive. How many of you understand that heaven is going to be different? We've got to let go of hedging our bets and setting down roots in what we currently can conceive of or know or comfortable with. It's good to let God do something in your life that makes you for a month or two or even six months totally go, I have no idea what to do with that whole thing over there. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. When we stiffen up, we become a slave to certainty. And when we become a slave to certainty, we almost certainly become narrow, arrogant, and blind. God will invariably end up doing something outside of our thin band of believing. Ever met someone who absolutely had to be certain and had to have an answer for every single thing? Those people are miserable. If you meet somebody who can't say, I don't know, man, just run away. Run away. People who are absolutely have to be certain about every single thing in God, you will end up being narrow. You'll end up being arrogant. And unfortunately, you'll end up being blind. Doubt is the mind squinting its eyes at the bright sunshine that is suddenly standing in. All you have to do is give it a minute. Some more good news for the doubters. No one gets kicked off of Jesus' team for doubt. No one gets kicked off. In fact, if we can put the Matthew passage back up, Matthew. In fact, not only do people not get kicked off of Jesus' team for doubt, he actually commissions doubters to go and do his work. Look. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You don't get kicked off, you get commissioned. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't even have to be certain of every single thing to go and do Jesus' work. No one gets kicked off. It's still possible to walk in a meaningful relationship with Jesus while still having doubts. In the midst of all of our doubts, there is Jesus, standing before Thomas on the road to Emmaus. If you are struggling in any area of your faith, if you're having a hard time believing this or that, 
If you'll take one small moment, if you'll stop, if you'll get quiet, if you'll look around, I promise you Jesus is there. If you've got doubts, do not fret. The light of God has suddenly gotten brighter and your mind is tempted to retract. Just wait. If you've got doubts, know this. Heaven is filled with unsure people. It's true. Heaven is going to be filled with doubters. Of course, once you get there, you won't anymore. But heaven's filled with people who were unsure. Heaven's filled with doubters. Heaven's filled with doubters. My guess is that heaven is mostly filled with people who only believed some of it and couldn't hardly possibly kind of sort of had a hard time with a good bit of it, maybe lots of it. Um, I, I know some people, uh, I, I met a person once who really struggled with believing certain parts of the Bible and they wondered if God was going to send them to hell for that. I'm like, are you kidding me? You think he's that like petty? Trust his son. I'm telling you, just trust his son. Forget the rest. Trust his son. Trust his son. There's whole parts of the Bible I, I freak out about. You read it and you go... You know that whole like Joshua son standing still thing? Man, I had me goofed up for years. Jesus didn't kick me off of his team. That part where Samson catches 300 foxes and lights their tails on fire? <laughs> that part, right? Right, right, right. Here's, here's why that part freaks me out. That part freaks me out because I've lived in Kentucky my whole life. This is like wild animal habitat. The Indians used to come here to go hunting. And in my whole life, I think I've seen 15 foxes. My whole life. And in one night, Samson catches 300 of them and lights their tails on fire. I struggled with that. And guess what? It doesn't matter. It it doesn't matter. I'm trusting Jesus, and one day he's going to help me with the whole Samson fox thing. Some people here, are just, you're struggling, you're struggling with, with things that may seem a lot more serious than that. I'm here to tell you, put your trust in Jesus. He'll take care of the rest. He'll meet you. He will meet you. He will meet you right in the middle of it. If you've got doubts and you've been waiting to follow Jesus until all your doubts are gone, don't. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it because you're going you're gonna to have them. And then even after you meet Jesus, he's going to make it worse. I'm telling you, he's going to make it worse. Here's kind of the worst I'm talking about. I've seen Jesus heal people. And I'm not talking about metaphorical healing, and I'm not talking about heart healing. I'm talking about heal their sick bodies, people who didn't have a chance. I've seen people who were laying on their deathbed receive prayer from a believer and in a week get up and get on with life. And then I've had a good friend get cancer and two of my buddies went and we prayed for him and that guy died. I'm telling you, don't wait. Don't wait around. Don't let doubt be the limiting factor on whether or not you're going to follow Jesus because even after you follow Jesus, he's going to lead you into some stuff that will only freak you out more. 
And if you've seen Jesus get somebody out of their deathbed only to go and pray for the other guy and you felt like it was more of a done deal than the first guy and seen the second guy die, let me tell you right now, it doesn't get easier. It gets more complicated. But in the, fact, in the midst of it all, Jesus is still God's resurrected son and he's still leading the charge. And I don't know about this number two guy, but I'm sure about this one guy over here and I'm sure about Jesus and he's going to make it all make sense in the end because number two guy who died, that was true, but it's not eternally true. It's going to fade and it's going to it's going to go away like we'll look back on that and we'll be like well that was something wasn't it so if you've got doubts you need to know this heaven is filled with unsure people don't give the devil a foothold to lie or beat you down christ is risen and his kingdom is here and his kingdom is coming If you've got some doubts this morning, you should also not let that keep you from following Jesus. In fact, if you've got some doubts about Jesus, it probably means you're already standing in the river that he wants to dunk you in. Like you couldn't even have a doubt about Jesus if you didn't already sort of somewhere secretly in your heart, if you hadn't already sort of somewhere secretly in your heart started to believe something about Jesus. That's the way it works. You can't doubt what you don't somewhere, someplace have a foundation to believe from. Don't let that stop you. The disciples didn't let that stop them. Thomas Dowden, he took the gospel everywhere. Asia has the gospel because of Thomas. You know that? It's amazing. The guy was like, no, I won't. <laughs> Jesus is like, here I am. Thomas is like, good enough. Okay, see you guys. Boom. <laughs> Asia today has has the gospel because of doubting Thomas. It's pretty good record. I believe I'll take that. Yeah. Before we transition the meeting this morning, though, I do want to give an opportunity. Does anybody here need to receive Jesus? Anybody here never never made a public confession of faith? Anybody here believed in Jesus maybe a little bit, but you were like, oh, I don't know. I feel like I just need to pump the brakes on that thing. Is that anybody here? If that's you, why don't you stand up? We want to celebrate with you before we transition this meeting. Anybody? By the way, I'm not that pastor who does the hardcore manipulation thing. Every eye closed, every head bowed. No, we're not going to do that. We just, is that Anybody? Anybody believe this much but need to go ahead and believe that much? Anybody willing to do that? If that's you, why don't you just stand up? Awesome. Well, then why don't we do this? Why don't you all stand up? Band, why don't you come up? We're going to receive communion this morning as our final act of celebrating the resurrected Lord.